is movie going back around the world after this weekend? Can we confidently say that? Or do we still expect any more pitfalls, twists and turns as we uh, look at the rest of the year? This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by my colleagues, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, chief analyst of Box Office Pro. This is our second Cine Europe podcast coming on the heels of the strongest weekend in the pandemic for several key markets across Europe and the Americas here in theatrical exhibition. A lot of great momentum. We'll be going into detail on that later. We will also have special coverage recapping as much as we can from Barcelona, where I'm at right now with our CEO, Julian Marcel. We will be going over those highlights from the event later on today, as well as some insights on the technology side of the show with our partners from Cineonic, who are sponsoring this week's episode. This episode is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced services and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, Cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of moviegoing. Visit Cineonic at this year's Cine Europe and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Well, there's a lot to catch up on on Cine Europe, guys. We'll get into that shortly. But let's open with the weekend's box office results first. Rebecca, this was a massive opening weekend for Venom, which Ooh. you actually saw at the drive-in, this Venom sequel. How was that experience? This was my uh, my very first drive-in experience. I caught it at the uh, Warwick Drive-In in Warwick, New York. Just an absolutely amazing experience. Uh, Daniel and Sean, as you both well know, 2020 was a box office's 100th anniversary. And as part of preparation for centennial coverage, we've been you know going through the archives and seeing the ads for some of those like double features from the 70s, like, uh, I don't know, Killer Spiders from Outer Space or Demon Biker Ladies from Hell you know, titles like that. This felt like one of those perfect double feature drive-in movies. Just silly, fun, <laughs> a really good time. Um, critics didn't like it, but but I, I really did love it. And uh, so did audiences in North America because it opened uh, to $90 million in the domestic market. That is the biggest domestic opening weekend of the pandemic. Uh, the second highest October opening of all time, trailing only uh, Joe Joker's $96.2 million. It even opened higher than the original Venom, which in 2018 opened to uh, $80.26 million. And that on uh, actually over a holiday weekend, which this Venom sequel did not have the advantage of. And obviously, of course, uh, Venom 2 had the handicap of opening during a pandemic. Nonetheless, I mean, AMC and Cinemark both reported that because of this film, I mean, coming out, they had their largest single day grosses of the pandemic uh, in the North American market. So 
Sean, I don't think anyone was was necessarily expecting this high of a result uh, from from Vintage. Let there be carnage, but it really did show out. I mean, and that that has to be in part because it was a theatrically exclusive film. Absolutely, and this was you know after so many months of we've we've worked on forecasts for films that have you know either maybe beaten expectations by a little bit or or hit expectations in terms of these big releases like F Nine and Black Widow over the summer. We still had not really had that movie. Shang-Chi was kind of the first clear like suggestion that this could start becoming a thing, but that was a one-off uh, that something could just really blow past expectations. And now here we are with, honestly, a film that I don't think a lot of people expected to explode like this in the way that you know maybe it was less of a surprise for a, Marvel, a, a Disney Marvel film, I should say, with Shang-Chi, because the first Venom was a big hit. Uh, I think arguably it had somewhat mixed word of mouth and there was just kind of this natural assumption that it might be the type of sequel that would see diminished returns. It honestly wasn't tracking as well as the first movie for a very long time. Now in retrospect, we can kind of see that that was for a lot of reasons, probably attributable to the fact that not many people really knew when it was going to come out until right up to release. Um, And it certainly played well to casual audiences and it didn't rely as, as immediately on that diehard fan base. So, uh, you know, and I think just in addition to all that, maybe this is kind of the first example of a movie that can overperform in terms of bringing back people who have been away from theaters for so long. Maybe it, it went past its ceiling. This is potentially way better than it would have done pre-pandemic, I think you could argue. So uh, a lot to unpack, that's for sure. <laughs> and really just building on some of that momentum that I think the other 10 polls that performed well helped build in terms of welcoming audiences back on that first trip back to the cinema. We're no longer talking about tent poles coming out, having to shoulder those expectations of being someone's first time back to the movies, right? And you guys remember that first trip back to the movies uh, after this pandemic started happening. We were nervous, we were tentative. It really wasn't as comfortable as exhibitors have tried to make it. There's a lot of trepidation, I think, for anyone doing that. And I want to bring in some insights that uh, our colleagues over at NCM, the cinema advertising company, put together. They poll a number of moviegoers uh, across the nation uh, very frequently here during the pandemic, before the pandemic, uh, just to see where moviegoers are in terms of sentiment. Uh, To give you some idea, guys, Back in the week of September 8th, when Tenet was still the, the, big, the big movie we were all talking about here in North American cinemas, according to NCM, 32% of their moviegoer respondents had been back to the movies uh, at that point in early September 2020. Let's fast forward to that same week, September 7th, 2021, a year later, that 32% is now 92% of respondents. That's a huge swing in people not only coming back to the movies, but feeling comfortable to come back again and again. And I I really think that has to be part of the factor of why now that we have consistency in movies coming back, audiences know they can have a good time. Audiences know and feel comfortable at the movies and they're showing up and we're seeing it in terms of box office. Agreed, agreed, Daniel. I have to imagine that a lot of the people who went out to see Venom Let There Be Carnage on their opening weekend were people who saw Shang-Chi. They're like, okay, this is safe. I feel comfortable. This is fun. Waiting for a new film. Kind of in that same, you know, superhero demographic to come out. And they go out and they 
Tsi Venom. Uh, speaking of Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, that film, of course, in its fifth weekend, finally dropping out of the number one spot to number three, dropping to uh, just about six million on around 3,500 screens. Of course, uh, losing around 500 screens, a lot of those premium screens to Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Coming in and second place was The Addams Family 2, which opened to 18 million on around uh, 4,200 screens. Uh, that film actually came out day and date, both in screens and then uh, at home as a PVOD release. So um, interesting, interesting numbers there. Uh, that that opening eighteen million, not enough to surpass Venom. Uh, Sean, what did you feel? How how did this line up with your expectations? Because uh, this this is the first family film to come out in in quite a few weeks. At the same time, I mean, the first film in October nineteen open to around 30.3 million. So a big drop there. Yeah. And I think this is one of the, probably the three releases that I would say really kind of hit that expectation. Um, and yeah, it, obviously we had to temper forecast for this because of the two big reasons. Number one, the fact that it was available as a, a PVOD release at home, which is in large part due to the fact that families, parents, and uh, young kids are still part of that audience, not quite going back at the same levels because of vaccines not being available to kids under 12. So this was expected. And honestly, I would I would say that this is actually a positive sign for family movies going forward, because once those vaccines are available for that age group, this really speaks to the hunger and the demand for, for parents and kids to get back to movies, hopefully by the end of this year. But certainly, well, not certainly, but almost, I would probably think throughout next year, uh, by the time that eligibility is is kicking in, you know, this was a sequel to already a surprise hit two years ago, and for it to come in at 17 million despite at-home availability and and those other factors uh, just really speaks to, I think, where this recovery will go for for family films in the long run. Now, now, Sean, you mentioned that The Addams Family 2 is the film that kind of hit your expectations. Of course, Venom Let There Be Carnage is the film that made higher than expectations. <laughs> right. So the release that made lower than expectations, uh, we're looking at fourth place finisher, The Mini Saints of Newark, uh, opened uh, to only 5 million on around 3,100 screens, a Warner Brothers release, and thus debuted uh, day and date in theaters and on HBO Max. We have to start rephrasing day and date when it comes to these Warner Brothers titles. They're looking like day and dead yeah. when they come out on the box office, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, this right. is, oh. yeah, that's, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate because as we've talked about in the past, we acknowledge how important it was for a studio like Warner Brothers to come out with a way that made sure films hit their release dates in the toughest part of the pandemic. I think everyone agrees that was a really important decision that was good for the industry. At this point, Sean, I mean, it's been really disappointing returns as we're seeing great overperformance of films going theatrically exclusive. Did Warners shoot themselves in the foot by committing to a whole year's of uh, day and date releases here? It seems that way. Obviously, the the context we none of us can ever fully provide because they, the studio and the parent company don't provide the streaming data is how well this supposedly did on HBO Max. So we'll put that aside. We all know that to be true. Uh, just looking at the box office numbers, this is not what you expect from a Warner Brothers movie. Or honestly, I think we talked about this on the last show, 
I think what could have been an example of another type of Downton Abbey sort of film based on a a massively popular award-winning TV series with a fairly sizable audience. Uh, I think Newark was a film that maybe if it didn't quite have Downton Abbey potential, it certainly could have been, you know, a mid teens to up to to maybe low twenties opening under normal circumstances. This just really proved that uh, if, if if a movie is available at home, to watch for free with that target audience, I think is very important here because it's a very adult centric audience. They're making that choice and it's become a trend of Warner brothers movies over the last few months. There's, there's not really an example of a movie that's beaten expectations or even hit expectations at this point under, under their banner over the last few months. Guys, for context of in this domestic opening weekend for the many saints of Newark, uh, of course, as you mentioned, Rebecca opening in fourth place with $5 million Remember back in August 2020 when Unhinged, starring Russell Crowe, came to the movie theaters in the middle of a pandemic? That movie also opened with $5 million. When looking at things through that lens, like you say, Sean, I'm I'm not sure this is a, a great strategy, as also you mentioned, without really knowing what the impact is on their streaming service. But without keeping things too negative, it was overall a great weekend for movie theaters here domestically with the record-setting debut of Venom, Let There Be Carnage. As Rebecca mentioned, $90 million opening weekend, the highest of the pandemic. And overseas, that momentum kept on rolling with the debut of No Time to Die finally coming out. That made $121.3 million from its overseas debut across 54 markets. Leading the pack is the UK and Ireland, its home market, where it became the fifth biggest three-day opening of all time. Pandemic or not, it opened in fifth place ever on that chart. And it only took four days for this movie to become the top movie of the pandemic. It only took three days for the movie to become the top movie of 2021 in that market. Unbelievable results. We're also seeing great results in Germany where it opened to 15 million. Japan, 5.5 million. Guys, Denmark with its biggest opening weekend of all time, 5.4 million, 4.6 in South Korea. And then we're seeing these numbers really overperform predecessors like Spectre and Skyfall with Sweden opening at 4.3 million. And in the Netherlands, a $4.1 million debut. That's the third biggest opening weekend of all time. You know, Sean, it really makes me think we were speaking about this before recording the podcast, that with the overperformance of Venom here, it really kind of changes your forecasting moving forward. You really have to reassess the points that you think films are going to be able to hit. Uh, Given the fact that with Venom Let There Be Carnage, clearly a large number of people are more comfortable going to theaters now than they were in the past months. Given the performance of No Time to Die, uh, this record-breaking performance in several markets, what's the range that you're expecting for No Time to Die when it comes out in North America this weekend? You know, that's honestly still in flux at this point. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, and what happened last week, we got to discuss this before recording, was th- things were looking great for Venom. They were moving up and up, and then within two days, uh, it was very clear that this thing was just going to explode. We just still didn't really have a clear idea how by how much. I think, I, I think something like that's going to happen again with No Time to Die. I think this thing is snowballing, not just the movie itself, but overall momentum, as you both have talked about. 
really the fact that Venom domestically and No Time to Die internationally at the same time on the same weekend did so well uh, serves as a harbinger of, of what's about to happen, not just this week or this month, but over the next few months with, with more and more of these tentpoles coming out. The discussion for many months early in this year had been, uh, you know, can any movie hit 100 million in a weekend at the box office this year in North America? If Venom, if Venom hit 90, I mean, if, my goodness, yeah. no time to die. I mean, <laughs> it seems like a shoe in. Now, what I want to just, I think we all have to be cautious in that expectation because number one, James Bond has an older audience. And Venom is very heavily yeah. under 30, under 25. True, true. And that's the audience that's comfortable that's, going yeah, back to right. Absolutely. That's a great and, point, Sean. And Bond is also an hour longer, which means fewer show times over the weekend. Uh, but it does have potentially some of that holiday boost, not as major of a factor uh, given that it mostly affects kids out of school on Monday, but still maybe something to consider. Uh, you know, I, and I think this is just one movie we're going to have to look at and, and probably have a very wide range on it. Before Venom came out, it was it was very feasible. This was we were kind of looking at anywhere between 70 to 90 million. It, it goes without saying that range goes up now. Uh, I would say 100 million is included, but it doesn't have to hit 100 million. That's that's the one thing I hope everybody in the, in the industry remembers next weekend. If it falls a little short or if it doesn't get there. It, this is a franchise that will have staying power in the weeks ahead, and you know we'll see what happens. But my my gut feeling right now, after we kind of before we look at the data throughout these next few days, uh, leading up to our final forecast on Thursday afternoon, my my gut feeling is that we could we could see something really special happen this weekend. And if that doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy, I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can read Sean's final forecast on our website, boxofficepro.com, on Thursday afternoon, where Sean is going to be looking not only at that opening weekend for No Time to Die, but that sophomore frame for Venom, which is going to be interesting, guys. I think we all have question marks. We expect a drop, obviously. How big of a drop, considering that it's theatrically exclusive? So don't miss that column Thursday afternoon on Box Office Pro. Dot com. Guys, that wasn't the only bit of big news overseas. We can't forget the tops. We can't forget the world's top box office market, China, where a local film, The Battle of Lake Changjin, opened to over $200 million last weekend. That's a fantastic figure that includes $12.9 million from IMAX screens. Rebecca, I think you mentioned it earlier. IMAX coming in with its highest opening weekend in a long time with uh, 30 million from the entire global market. Uh, fantastic results really left and right. Let's close up this side of the conversation before we go into our Cine Europe portion of the podcast. Is movie going back around the world after this weekend? Can we confidently say that? Or do we still expect any more pitfalls, twists and turns as we uh, look at the rest of the year? I mean, that's there are always going to be pitfalls and twists and turns. I think you know we've used the phrase ebb and flow a lot over this uh, last year and year and change, and it's still going to be that. I mean, you look at something like Dear Evan Hansen or Mini Saints of Newark that are underperforming. But that said, I think if something that is expected to do well, like may maybe say a big budget spectacle like Dune, if that does underperform. Doesn't mean that the entire uh, movie-going, theater-going ecosystem is somehow dead or doomed or something like that. That that's natural. It's going to happen. Yeah, I I would echo the same thing. I I think we have to 
also just kind of take things on a movie by movie basis. There, we're we're still looking at the fact that several markets, not well, probably more than several, but in terms of where vaccinations stand in some countries, nothing is the same. No one's really on the same level. Uh, I think that's just something we have to continue watching into 2022, and that's just the reality of it. But at the same time, I, I do think in some ways you can look at this this performance from No Time to Die and say that in a large way, movie going is back, but it's still in the recovery process. And we're we're just kind of moving to the next phase of it. This is something we, the three of us have always talked about being you know, a multi-phase situation in terms of we get a few people here, then the next wave of movie comes, come, then the next wave of movies comes out and then it just kind of builds from there. And we're in the process now of getting to where it's a almost weekly basis. By the end of the year, I think we'll continue to see more and more improvement. It's just about getting through this fall season, I think, that will really be important in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's about market by market. And also, as you mentioned before, Sean, demographic by demographic in terms of who's comfortable coming back. Absolutely, guys. And I think as we have that conversation about markets, about demographics, it's always valuable to check in with our international colleagues to see what's going on in the market. For those folks listening on Thursday, don't forget that on Friday, October 8th, you can tune in to our Cine Europe recap. That is happening at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on Friday, October 8th, where I will be joined by several industry guests going over the highlights of Cine Europe 2021. And Rebecca and Sean are going to be there live offering some of the forecasting we have for Q4 and 2022. You can register for that web conference live on our website at any point. That's boxofficepro.com. Go to the top left-hand corner, click on live sessions. You'll be able to register and tune in, get a recording of the session afterwards in case you can't make it at that time. Now, if you can't make it to that web conference, good news, we've got a big Cine Europe recap here with a couple of industry guests. Rebecca, Sean, thanks so much for uh, joining us once again here on the Box Office Podcast. And now I will turn it over to the Cine Europe portion of the program. And welcome, folks, here for the Cine Europe portion of this podcast. I'm here in Barcelona. Rebecca, unfortunately, you're, you're still in New York, although I have to tell you, when I landed here, rain. Not what you usually associate unless you're a big Mike Bear Lady fan. No, no, uh, no rain in, in, in Spain on the plane. Is that is that the reference there? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going for. Yeah, that's I'm good. trying to remember it. But movie people. Hashtag movie people. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's uh, it's been the typical uh, bagels and pizza here in New York. But I'm excited to hear from you about uh, what's been going down at this first in-person Cine Europe since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, there was one last year, but uh, it was digital and, and you didn't have that in-person component that's so important for events like these. Let me tell you, Rebecca, the focus of the event, I think, can be split down to two main topics. Number one, the importance of local content. That means national films, films from a specific country. To take place of those times when the quote-unquote Hollywood tap runs dry. So whenever a studio pulls uh, a release delay or decides to take something day and date, as we spoke about with Phil Clapp and Laura Ogut last week, that has a ripple effect in global markets. In Europe experienced that firsthand last year. They reopened. They were ready to go. 
but U.S. studios just weren't ready to release films without United States theaters being open. And what we saw in Europe in the latter half of 2020 was that the countries with strong local cinema industries, a strong slate of local productions, were able to take the reopening at a different pace than those that weren't. So countries like Russia were able to really get back on track faster than other countries because they had that. Countries like France, once they were able to to be around and, and release local films, they were able to do that. That early uh, that early film from Spain that hit during the pandemic and broke a ton of records, Padre No I Mas Que No Dos, and I mean that was that was early in the pandemic, and obviously there's been a lot of back and forth reopening and closing across different markets in Europe, but. Have those stories continued to emerge throughout the entire breadth of the pandemic? Are we still seeing those those stories of local success titles even now? I think we are, obviously, with the complement of a consistent slate of releases. You know, this event is coming on the heels of No Time to Die, setting attendance records in many countries. Uh, that's pandemic attendance records. But you mentioned Padre No Hay Más Que Uno Dos, the, the comedy sequel that came out in Spain in the height of the pandemic in 2020 last year, set great attendance records during the pandemic in Spain. The producer of that film, Maria Luisa Gutierrez, was actually here at Cine Europe receiving uh, an award for taking that risk of releasing a film in theaters during this time. Now, it's not just any film hitting the market, Rebecca. Padre No Hay Más Que Uno was one of the most successful comedy movies in recent years in Spain. And they didn't hold the sequel. They released it. They released it. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was the top grossing movie, the original. In 2019, they had the sequel ready to go. They could have waited to 2021, but they didn't. The producer, Maria Luisa Gutierrez, coming on stage, speaking with uh, Comscore's Arturo Guillén about her decision to release a movie the background here was fascinating. Maria Luisa, Maria Luisa comes up and says that she was seeing how Spanish cinemas were suffering. And she knew that as a film producer, she had a winner in her hands with this sequel. And that if they didn't do something, the movie theaters that they needed in 2021 might not be there if they waited any longer. So she got in touch with uh, Arturo over at Comscore Spain to talk about strategy. Arturo connected her with a team over Gower Street uh, to run some financial forecasts, some financial models on what would happen. Identifying a gap in the Spanish market to release a movie in 2020, in the height of the pandemic. And Maria Luisa said that what she got in response was, quote, you might die. You know, this might, this might completely kill <laughs> Oh your my pitch. God. It could, it could, you, it could have backfired completely. It, it might set you back entirely, or it might be a massive hit. So you're taking a massive risk. It's going to be all or nothing. And fortunately, the producer alongside uh, star Santiago Segura, who's also uh, a producer on the film, they decided to take the risk because they knew that cinemas in Spain were taking a risk by staying open and they did it to the great success. Yeah, I think that's interesting, but how does that apply to us? You have a film, a local production in Russia, for example, doing particularly well. Well, we wouldn't screen that title, so, so it's not relevant to us. But I think it really speaks to the wider issue of a diversity of content. It's, it's an important lesson for American exhibitors as well. And part of those speakers talking not only about local content, but the rise of specific markets because of local content are exhibitors from Russia. 
Uh, Olga Sinyakova, the CEO of Caro Cinemas, who we've had in the podcast, uh, I believe it was in 2020 when we had them on. Uh, she shared some great insights about how Russia was able to leverage the success of their own films with recent releases. We know that Venom came out, what was it, last weekend, did over $13 million in that. It hit, it hit a billion rubles. I don't know the exchange rate, but uh, A but billion rubles good. sounds better than $13 million. <laughs> say, that sounds awful. Yes. Let's go with that. <laughs> Let's so, say that one. Russia really emerging as a top European market because- It's a fascinating story. It's a balance, right, Rebecca? Being able to have- these big Hollywood blockbusters, and during those off weeks, those in-between periods, having a pipeline of local content. Now, that's a challenge for some markets in a way that it isn't for others. As you remember last week, Phil Clapp saying, in the UK, that shares a language with the United States, that line of what is local content for the UK, that line is blurred. And that's something that- uh, Is James Bond local content for the UK? <laughs> That's a real question. It's actually a question that Serena Gill, the head of film at Everyman Media Group here uh, at, uh, at Cine Europe, brought up. How do we consider uh, films like Downton Abbey, films like uh, No Time to Die? Are they local content? So that line is blurred. And one of the big changes from the pandemic that I think uh, Serena was able to share from Everyman's perspective is that the UK film industry is acknowledging that issue today. And I think we're going to see some changes when it comes to local productions. I got to ask you, what are the conversations around windows that are happening at City Europe? That's something that's very much outside of exhibitors control. And really, it's something that's outside of distributors control. <laughs> you know, these are decisions that are being taken by massive media conglomerates for several different reasons. But what exhibitors can control is how they position cinemas for the consumer. So actually... Let me interrupt this conversation we're having right now, Rebecca, because it's a great opportunity to go to a conversation I had with the CEO and CMO of Cineonic, our podcast partners uh, for these series of episodes, where we spoke about the role of premium formats and premiumization, which is a huge conversation happening for exhibitors all over the world and is definitely happening here in Europe. We're here back at Cine Europe from the Cineonic Laser Theater, speaking with Wim Bayans, the CEO of Cineonic, and Carl Resbrick, the CMO of Cineonic. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a really interesting week getting insights from the European exhibition industry. I think we turned a corner with the release of No Time to Die in Venom, a lot of momentum. So let me start with you, Wim. We spoke about it a little bit at CinemaCon last month, but let's expand on how you think premium technology, like the ones offered by Cineonic, are helping drive uh, the cinema recovery effort with audiences today. Well, you know, like we stated before, it's important when somebody gets out of the couch going to the theater that it's special. Mm -hmm. Premium helps to bring that special experience there so that they really know why they're going out of the home and, and what they paid for and the fact that they're coming back. So premium is definitely on top of mind of every of our customers. And that's also why we've been very successful in, in those conversations. It's often an important conversation because it's their bigger screens. It is quite also an investment. So that's also why we come up with business models to you know, apply in this industry here to make it easier for them to digest with a flexible program, but but it's really on top of mind for them. So we really see premium being also at the show in Europe here, very important. One thing for us is very clear in this recovery, it's working together with the exhibitors. And I think that's a very important position that we take, uh, making sure that we enable the exhibitors 
to have sufficient material, to have su sufficient visual messages, one-liners, whatever is there, mm -hmm. to actually make the, the, com the combination between what you're going to get and what actually the experience is about. So we're doing this in multiple ways by promoting content that is visible in the Cineonic Giant screen, but also helping some of our customers by linking the message with, for example, laser projection. And, right. and that's what you have seen before at, Cine at CinemaCon, where we're doing this now with Cinemark in the US, where we kind of make the connection between the experience, the image on the screen, and what the user is going to get, to allow that differentiation, but also to improve the experience and get that connection going. Because people are making that connection to see this is what I'm going to get, I'm going to go back to that. So we have, a, we have a role to play to educate and to differentiate in that matter. And that's something that Tim Richards from View International was talking about at the Executive Roundtable here at CinemaCon. How the premium, most expensive screens, that's not a 365-day-a-year business, right? It's a, it's a situation that helps with opening weekends. The idea here is to make every screen special. And I think technology like laser is an opportunity. And we're seeing that, I think, from your perspective at Cineonic a couple of years back, when you guys decided to go all laser. For a projector company, that was a big bet. And now, what are you seeing some years later from that decision in terms of the the pickup from exhibitors, both in new builds and remodels, going to laser? Well, you know, it was, it was more than seven years ago we launched the first laser projector, uh, and more than 10 years ago we did a real investment at that time. I think it's been a, a tremendous learning. And as a technology company, you need to experiment and learn. But really, fast-forwarding to today, we have a huge amount of followers. It's really, we listen to what the customer wants. How can we drive the total cost of ownership down of running a projector? And how can we have a more stable, better picture quality by changing technology from lamps to laser? And that, that, that promise is 100% fulfilled. So, so we, we've been very happy to be able to invest and, and make those things come through because not everybody's been able to make those steps we see. Uh, but at the same token, our customers are really following us in a huge way. More than 25,000 projectors already today are fully laser. And the next couple of years, it is really um, uh, expanding very, very fast. And it's it's about getting that regular moviegoer at any screen, not just the, the best ones, to see that difference from their couch, right? Exactly. And, and Carl, one of the things that, that Cineonic is doing that really struck me is this campaign you launched with Cinemark, yeah. where you've already been communicating in your role as a marketer with the exhibitor on the benefits of laser. And now you're actually taking that message to the audience and helping them distinguish on what they're going to be seeing in a big yeah. screen than at home. It's something I always talk about. My friends, they know what HDTV is. They know when they buy a 4K TV, they know that is. Now Dolby's done a great job in saying what Dolby Atmos is for the consumer. It looks like Cineonic is doing that with laser projection when it comes to the moviegoer. Yeah, well, I, th I think we, we did some research ourselves and we, we discovered that the, there is a real need for understanding on what that experience on the screen is all about. Mm -hmm. There was this kind of a missing gap. How do people connect that with what is behind that? And we believe now with our strong belief, our strong portfolio, and our full all-laser, that that connection can be made. So we kind of made sure that we can make that as a differentiation, but also for the exhibitor world, but also as a recognition for the moviegoers to understand this is what I'm going to get, this is what I'm looking for, and that technology is what enables this bright, brilliant, vivid color image that's what it is. So it gives that feeling of understanding. It's like when you really know what you're going to get because you, you've experienced it. And we've, we felt that when, when, when talking to women, when we first started, they said, we only have one objective, guys. Mm -hmm. Bring butts in seats, you mm -hmm. know? 
We are not here to just make great projectors. We are here to bring butts in seats. And if you want to bring butts in seats, you just don't talk about technology to yourself. Right. You have to step out that way. So we we drew this with our partners exhibitors because that's the key. Right? We're, not, we're not all shouting on our own. We want to make sure that our partner exhibitors are, are equipped, are supported, get all the necessary messages around it, and that we can actually reach our the moviegoers and make them actually understand what they're going to get. And I think that's where both the technology helps, but then some marketing tricks always help in that same sense. And it's connecting that that uh, line, right, from the exhibitor, knowing the benefits of the new technology, taking that risk with the providers, and then finishing that loop with a yeah. consumer, saying every screen at a cinema is a special screen. It's something that uh, I believe it was one of our colleagues at, at AMC, if I remember correctly, it might have been Ryan Noonan, their VP of communications, told us at, at a webinar we did that every screen, every single screen at AMC, even their smallest screen, is better than the best home entertainment theater at home. And that's what we have to start promoting, not just the best screens in cinemas, but every screen at a cinema. Really fascinating uh, to hear that conversation, Daniel. What are these other conversations that are happening uh, specifically and maybe about the holistic idea of what a theater should be? You know, it's something that exhibitors worldwide, even on this podcast, we've heard differing opinions on it, right? So I remember the interview we had with uh, Nathaniel Karmitz, one of the CEOs of MK2, the specialty French distributor and exhibitor, uh, talking about how they don't really see premiumization as the right way to go. They want to make movie going accessible for everyone and not go into the premium amenity conversation. If you remember at CinemaCon, Rebecca, Chris Aronson, the head of uh, domestic distribution at Paramount, that's something he spoke about as well, making movie going accessible for as many people as possible instead of making the movie going experience something that's divided into the super ultra class and the uh, entry level ticket. It's such an engaging conversation and we're seeing aspects of that here where uh, one of the key points, I think, that uh, Tim Richards, the CEO of View International, one of the main circuits in the UK market, was really stressing the same perspective that premiums are great for opening weekend, premiums are great for, uh, for the big screen experience, but it's, according to him, a quote, not a 365-day-a-year business. It's not something that every screen that you have and every showtime that you have is going to be a PLF. So Richards, from his perspective, he's really looking at things as how to elevate the movie-going experience for everyone. And that's something that, as you heard a second ago, that I was talking about uh, with Wim Byans from Cineonic, in what's the role of premium seating? What's the role of laser projection in every auditorium rather than just one? Elevating the movie-going experience. What's the role of things like mobile ticketing moving forward? I mean, what you're saying really reminds me of the conversations that we've had on this podcast with several representatives of dine-in chains. For example, in our Indie Focus episode with Matthew Baser of Flix Brewhouse, talking about some people want a touchless, like, don't talk to me, I know what I want, <laughs> don't come near me experience, and other people want that more personalized, you know, quote-unquote, let's call that the more premium element. The key, it seems to, to be, is just providing options. You don't want to price people out of going to the theater by any means. Absolutely not. And pricing, I think, is going to be a, a, a key component here. And uh, mobile ticketing, as you mentioned as well. 
this session was actually moderated by our CEO, Julian Marcel. And he noted that for our parent company, which assists exhibitors with digital ticketing, they broke every single digital ticketing record last weekend for a three-day span that they've ever had since starting this up. Now, we know the restrictions in the global market, but the uptick that they're seeing uh, in terms of consumers adopting digital ticketing has been massive. Uh, another big part of that, and I mentioned it briefly, are those more accessible premiums that you can adopt at your theater that aren't a PLF auditorium or an entire PLF. That aren't, that aren't going to add a five dollar, however many euro premium exactly. to the ticket price. And Tim Richards uh, brought up the importance of uh, premium seating of recliners. Now, recliners is something that everyone has at their home, but that's what you're also competing on. You can have the best sight and sound, which is great, but if you lose the moviegoer on the quality of your seat, sorry, you still lost them. So you have to compete at every single level. Uh, it's one of the big focuses for view moving forward is making sure that every single auditorium is better than what uh, than what viewers have at home. So it's it's a fantastic conversation as we balance the importance of premiums with uh, issues like pricing. And Mark Way, the managing director of Audience Cinemas and president of AMC Europe, it's something that he brought up here: the importance of being able to adopt uh, concepts like dynamic pricing. And you might know this, Rebecca. It's interesting because at AMC, that's something that they're quietly rolling out. AMC in the United States, rolling out discount days on specific days of the week. And on some uh, showtimes, AMC is actually offering uh, discounts of up to, I think, 25%, uh, let's say 11 a.m., 2 p.m. showtimes during weekdays that they normally didn't use to. It's, it's an interesting strategy when we look at what pricing uh, can turn into moving forward for exhibitors. And that really ties into uh, demographics as well. Who are the audience who you want to draw in in particular times and might need that kind of, let's say, sweetening of the pot of a discount to do that? And then, of course, we have to address the other situation here as we talk about the return to cinemas. Now, we've been discussing in detail in this podcast the great results of Venom and No Time to Die to get audiences back in. And something that Andrew Cripps uh, said in a panel here, he's the president of International Theatrical Distribution at Warner Brothers. He had a really interesting quote during one of his panels. He said that, quote, people are ready to see blockbusters at the movies. We know that. The question is, are they ready to see anything else? And that's something we've discussed a lot in our box office coverage. We know that the big tent poles, they're bringing in people. The big question mark is, are adult audiences going to feel comfortable to come back in? And there was a good insight here from Anna Marsh, the CEO of Studio Canal, uh, one of the big sort of European uh, distributors and studios, where she brought up the example of a local title in France called Back North. Uh, this is a title that was supposed to hit a little bit of an older demographic in release when it came out in the late summer in France. They were very cautious to see what was going to happen, but to their older demographic, obviously not the most eager to come back to cinemas or to do go back to anything in public for understandable reasons. Exactly. They knew this was going to be an issue with this release of this French title in the market, and they were right. Anna Marsh saying that those first couple of weekends, Back Nord 
had a really hard time getting to older viewers. It skewed much younger than they had anticipated. But what they found was that in week three, week four, week five, the older audience came back. When you have a good title with good word of mouth, even if the audience, that older audience isn't ready to come in opening weekend, if it's a good run of theatrical exclusivity, they can come down further, further down the line. That's a massive question that we have with a 17-day specialty window for independent and art house titles. And that, that theatrical exclusivity window is so key. I mean, you see these adult titles uh, debuting here domestically and things like the mini Saints of Newark. If you don't give them theatrical exclusivity, they're not really having the chance to find that audience willing to go out to theaters for them because all you have to do is click a couple buttons on your remote control. Well, it places undue expectations for smaller films. Where I get if Venom has to make the bulk of its grosses in the first five days, is that the expectation we have in the specialty market now? to determine a theatrical run? Are we really going to put the same box office expectations of James Bond to Pedro Almodovar movies? It makes no sense. Or a movie like like Titan, uh, which was released by Neon and obviously a a local French title. Did that come up at all? It actually came up, Rebecca, in a lot of the conversations I'm having with exhibitors here in Barcelona from different parts of Europe. In the importance of making sure that these titles or well-represented by a distributor. So you mentioned Titan, right? You've seen Titan. It's not the easiest movie to sit through. That is not a movie for general audiences. Let's just say that. But you know what? Titan is playing at your local AMC in New York City. At the biggest multiplex in town, Titan has showtimes in New York. That's more than we can say about a more, let's say, accessible title, and we've spoken about this before, like the biggest uh, buzzy film out of Sundance, Coda. Coda is a lot more accessible than Titan. We can both agree on that. But because of the release strategy from Apple, it was really an afterthought for a lot of audiences outside of a very specialized limited release in some independent cinemas. So we have a situation where a title like Titan ends up being a lot more marketable and accessible for cinema goers than something like Coda in the United States. That's just insane to even think about, but we're seeing the ripple effects of these strategic decisions from distribution having an impact in the marketplace. And we're getting to the point where filmmakers are going to have to start balancing these, uh, these scenarios when they decide to sign with a distributor during a festival. And that brings up something very interesting that happened this week I am so fascinated by this, by this speaking of neon and speaking of, of innovative theatrical release strategies. We are talking about the film Memoria from director uh, Pishapong Wirsekathul, obviously a director who's had great success on the art house market before with films like uh, Uncle Boonmi. Uh, this film is being released, it's almost like a new school version of a roadshow release from American distributor Neon, where it's bopping around from, from one theater, from one city uh, to another at a time. The kind of the quote that we're getting from Neon, the elevator pitch for this is that it is having a theatrical exclusivity window of forever. It will be in theaters. (laughs) It is not getting a home video release of any kind. So you have to see it in theaters. And hopefully, and some some negative feedback I've, I've seen to this, which makes sense, is that you would have to live in a city that has an art house theater that would screen Memoria to see the film, which a lot of 
people don't. So that is, that is a component there. But I think it's a fascinating release strategy. But you know what the flip side here is? This is Neon handling this release domestically in the United States. Neon was able to take a film like Parasite and through theatrical exclusivity, not only win the Best Picture Oscar, but make that title accessible to a number of audiences in the United States that it maybe wouldn't have had access to. I think this is a fascinating uh, marketing move because that's what it is. It's not really a distribution. It's a bit of a marketing move. And I have a lot of confidence in Neon being a distributor to take something like this on. They've got the bona fides in distributing hard-to-market titles and getting them to a wider audience. So I'm excited. Giving them time, giving them space. Absolutely. But on the flip side, I have to tell you, again, Tim Richards from View International, he's looking at this shorter theatrical exclusivity window, something that he said during a panel here at uh, Cine Europe, he actually believes that a shorter theatrical exclusivity window is going to make it easier for more major multinational circuits to screen more independent titles. We'll see how that goes. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing more circuits like AMCs, like Cinemarks, like Regals, take on some of these smaller films and give them a, a bigger opportunity at the multiplex. We'll see where that goes. But as you mentioned, Rebecca, questions around theatrical exclusivity, what the impact is going to be, still at the forefront of everybody's minds. Everyone likes to frame this conversation, and we're guilty of it too, we have to admit, as a distribution versus exhibition question, right? They're at odds again, what's happening with the windows, but something that uh, Paul Higginson, and he's the EVP of EMEA over at Universal Pictures International, something that he said here at Cine Europe really echoed. The most difficult relationship right now, according to Higginson, is not between exhibition and distribution, it's with the moviegoer. We're in a situation where most moviegoers around the world have spent at least 18 months without going to the movies. That's a massive marketing challenge that both distribution and exhibition share. They share that burden, and they're going to have to find a way to work together to overcome that obstacle now that movie theaters are open, now that movies are sticking to their release dates. So I think that's the big question that I'm coming out of Cine Europe with. How are distribution and exhibition going to collaborate to reconnect with that global audience that hasn't gone to the movies that often? That's what's at stake, I think, for the rest of this year, not only with the big blockbusters coming out, but with the awards contention titles uh, that we're used to seeing in the winter months. How are audiences going to turn out? How is distribution going to address these challenges? How is exhibition going to market movie going to get that audience back in? Thanks so much for those those insights, Daniel. Really fascinating and, and certainly things that apply to the global exhibition industry. This has been the Cine Europe edition of the Box Office Podcast presented by Cineonic. The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Tune in next Thursday for another episode of our show.